Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Can we live a good life without suffering? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Notice that I use the word good and not happy just now. It doesn't really make any sense to ask whether we can suffer and be happy at the same time. But can we live a full and meaningful life without certain kinds of suffering? That's a much harder question. As it happens, I just watched an episode of The Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone, that explores this in a way only that show could. It's about a swaggering gangster who dies and wakes up in a place that has everything a guy like that would think of as paradise. He has all the sex and money and power he wants. It's an absolute carnival of decadent pleasures. And at first, he loves it. But then he grows bored and aimless and starts to hate it. You win again, Mr. Valentine. Yeah, I know. That's all I ever do in this nutty joint is win, win, win. Eventually, he asks his guide if he can go to hell instead. And that's when he learns he's already there. (laughs) A new book by the psychologist Paul Bloom called The Sweet Spot says this story captures the strangeness of human psychology about as well as anything can. Bloom's book is a compelling look at the relationship between suffering and meaning and why living a purposeful life means caring about much more than happiness. The book isn't pro-suffering, and Bloom is very careful to distinguish chosen suffering from unchosen suffering. But it is an attempt to explain why we sometimes seek out hardship and struggle and why the conventional image of humans as purely pleasure-seeking and pain-avoiding isn't so much wrong as incomplete. So in this episode, I talked to Bloom about the role of suffering in human life, 
why merely chasing after pleasure like an old-fashioned hedonist isn't enough, and why he would never plug into the matrix if he had the chance. We also talk about the happiness industry and why you should beware of the quick-fix self-help gurus out there. Paul Bloom, welcome to the show, my friend. Nice to talk to you again, Sean. I want to start with The Twilight Zone. Perfect. What is it about that episode and that story that sort of captures the strangeness of our psychology? Yeah, that episode could be, in some way, a capsule summary of the argument I make in my book, or one of the main arguments, which is that we often have meaningful pursuits. We often seek out different things. And we never look for trouble. You know, if I'm playing poker with you, I'm going to want to win. If I'm going to train for a marathon, I don't want to get blisters. I don't want to, you know, have problems with my training or drop out at some point. But without the potential for risk, without some sort of strain or effort or suffering, pursuits become worthless and uninteresting. And so the episode nicely encapsulates that point, which is it'd be a sort of hell never to hit suffering, never to find resistance or failure. Pursuits become meaningless. And so I think suffering and anxiety and pain have many purposes and make life better in many ways regarding pleasure. But, but this is the main one, which is it's part and parcel of meaningful activities. Well, part of what you're doing in this book is saying that we have been handed this two-dimensional picture of ourselves, a picture that I guess has its roots in Enlightenment era philosophy. But it's a picture that's very simplistic that says human beings are basically dominated by two desires, the desire to avoid pain and the desire to experience pleasure. Not that that's necessarily wrong altogether, but it it is incomplete, right? What is that picture leaving out that's important? I like the way you put it. It's not wrong that we pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Hedonistic goals are part and parcel of everybody's life. It's it's really hot outside and someone hands you some cool iced tea and that's just great. Um, nobody could deny we like food when we're hungry. We like, we like sex. We like good times. Where it goes wrong is assuming this is the only motivation, that the only motivation that draws us is pleasure. And such people who argue it, you know, some of them are very smart and they have thought out the counter examples. They say, like, well, sometimes you think you're helping people and doing a good thing, but you're really doing that for the buzz you get from being a good person. Sometimes you think you're um, sacrificing for some higher goal, but it just makes you feel good about yourself. And they ultimately reduce everything to pleasure. And I find that psychologically unrealistic and philosophically a bit naive. I'm more drawn in my book and in my work to what you call motivational pluralism, which is we want a lot of things. We do want pleasure. We also want to be good. We want those we love to prosper. Maybe some of us want truth and some of us want beauty and some of us want purpose. There is a whole cluster of motivations and that makes life more complicated and more interesting. And through my book, I use suffering and pain as sort of a lens to look at these different motivations. And that picture of human nature, is that, do we have the 17th century utilitarians to thank for that, for that kind of very simple picture of humans as pleasure seeking and pain avoiding? Yeah, it's all over the place. Unlike some doctrines which come out, you can't point to anybody. Isn't it the epic of Gilgamesh, somebody helpfully told me? It's in behaviorism. It's in certain somewhat simple-minded utilitarian or consequentialist views. It's in a lot of the less sophisticated modern-day positive psychology movement. It's in, um, I'm Canadian, so I'll quote Trooper, the Canadian band which says, we're here for a good time, not a long time. 
So have a good time. The sun can shine every day. It's in Trooper. Yeah. And it's in the minds of a lot of people I talked to who said, okay, okay, but in the end, don't we really just want pleasure? I'm certainly not opposed to it, but it does leave a lot out. That's exactly what I'd be saying. Why is it, though, that we enjoy certain kinds of suffering? And you do make a very important distinction that you can tease out here between chosen and unchosen suffering. But there yeah. is a certain species of suffering that's very important to us. What's up with that? Yeah, there are two distinctions which are absolutely important. I, I had a summary of my book published in the Wall Street Journal, and right away, you get the emails. And the first email called me all sorts of names, yeah. and it was written out of pain. And this woman said, I have this terrible illness, and I have chronic pain all my life. Who the hell are you to tell me this is good? What do you know? What have you experienced? And I responded right away saying, as, as I was clear in the article, I'm not making a case for unchosen suffering, unchosen pain. We could talk about the effects of being raped, of having a terrible illness, having somebody you, you, you love die. But I'm not saying, whoa, that's great. That's part of a great life. That's, for the most part, terrible. And people cope and people are resilient. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about chosen suffering and chosen pain. Chosen either because we literally choose it, like when we eat spicy foods or, or go to a scary movie, they're in the service of pleasure. Or when we seek out meaningful activities like having kids or going to war, which you know are going to involve struggle. And so that's the second distinction. Chosen suffering in the service of pleasure, in which case I'm, I'm happy to sort of hang around to hedonists. And then chosen suffering in the service of other things. But is there something to that well-worn Nietzsche platitude about, you know, whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger? Is there a, a grain of truth to that or maybe even more than a grain? There's a grain. I feel so awful when I push back against that view because it seems like all I do is sort of be negative about people's pain. So, yeah, there is research looking at people who have experienced bad events in their life. And there's this terrible scale. It's so sad to read. It's like 38 events, and you tick off how many you've had. Have you lost somebody you love? Have you been assaulted? And so on. Some people tick off zero. And these people who tick off zero actually have low pain tolerance, tend to catastrophize, and not, not as kind. So there's some truth to the fact that life should give you a little bit of struggle to get stronger. It's also true we're very resilient. Um, we're much more resilient than we often think we are. PTSD is really the exception, not the rule. The rule is bad things happen to people and then they get over it and they do better. But is there post-traumatic growth? Is there cases where something really bad happens to you and you emerge a better person? Well, people certainly think there is. Everybody has a narrative or knows of a narrative. Is this true or is this a story we tell ourselves? Sometimes it has to be true. It's a lot of people in the world, but I think it's actually for the most part, bad things that happen to you do not lead to personal growth. There's just not much evidence that they do and quite a bit of evidence against it. Well, I think in a lot of ways, your book is trying to answer or does answer what might seem like a simple question, which is something like, why are humans into so much weird shit? Or, yes. or maybe what I really mean there is like, why are we into things that don't make a whole lot of sense on the surface like from a purely rational perspective. And just for example, and to go back to you know TV and films for a second, which I know is something you, you love to do, why is it that we love scary movies, for example, right? Like I've never been into horror, but lots of people clearly are. And there's some deeper button that's getting pushed here. What is it? That's a great 
case study. Philosophers have been wrestling with it for a long time because it seems like such a puzzle. Right. Where, you know, you, you see a movie and you leave it and you're shaken and you're upset or you're weeping. And why would we seek out these things? There's a very bad theory. There's a couple of bad theories. One bad theory is catharsis, that afterwards you are spent and feel relaxed and glorious. But it turns out <laughs> that's just not true. People leave these movies shaky. Another bad theory is people who like scary movies aren't really scared. So that solves the problem, except it turns out it's not true. They're just as scared as people who don't like them. Somehow they enjoy the fear. And I think there's different answers to this question. I think some of it involves the experience of mastery, feeling a negative emotion or a typically negative emotion, and, and having some control over it in a controlled situation for whatever reason seems to be enjoyable. We sometimes we like to sulk or nurture our grudges or go to haunted houses and so on. This is actually the only part of the book, though, where I get kind of adaptationist. And I wonder whether or not we are sort of compelled to seek out worst case scenarios, whether there's an advantage to minds that always look to the bad stuff as a way of sort of sussing them out and thinking about them and preparing for them. It seems to me no accident that the best horror, the most attractive horror movies are ones that depict things in a fantastical way that are real world worries. You know, I, I give the example of zombies and zombie films. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Zombie, you know, we, gotta, we really have to worry about zombies. No. But zombie movies, zombie TV shows are actually about what happens when the world goes to hell. No police, no government. And that's something to worry about. Yeah, I guess it's not all that different from really sad or depressing movies, which I am absolutely right. into. I can't get enough of. I don't know why. I, I'm a crier. I cry my ass off. You know, I get all up in my feelings and it's weirdly enjoyable. And I can't quite explain it, but I don't think it's quite masochistic, but I'm into it. And I guess that's as perplexing as, you know, people wanting to be having their asses scared off, you know. Exactly. It's the same puzzle. It's even in our daydreams. One of the findings is daydreams are often like when we're just walking around thinking whatever we want to think about, we often turn towards the negative. So I don't know. I've, <laughs> my partner once came home kind of a little bit weepy. And I you know, it was wrong. I said, well, I was thinking about you were dead. What would happen if you died? And I think, why, why would you think that? And, well, there's different reasons. But in this case, it was just this masochistic worry. We often tend to think about the worst things. And I'll tell you something we don't know, by the way, just because often we have these conversations and everybody's confident in what they know. I don't think anybody knows why some people are like you and some people are like me. I don't think anybody knows. I've never heard a good theory, never heard any evidence for why some people like sad stuff, some people like scary stuff, some people like sauna, some people like spicy food, some people like... BDSM, there's enormous individual differences in people's appetite for this sort of thing. And I think nobody has the foggiest idea what's going on. Well, you just mentioned BDSM. That's bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, sadism and masochism. And obviously, I can't just let that pass by. And obviously, you're the experienced expert here. I don't know anything about anything as it relates to BDSM officially. Do you have some kind of theory on why people are into that sort of thing or what they're getting out of it? So first thing, just to get this out of the way, sometimes people still think of this as a sign of pathology, as a sort of pathological taste. But there's two reasons why not to think that. One reason is that the people who engage in BDSM don't seem to have anything wrong with them. They're not more likely to suffer from depression or anxiety or whatever. Maybe a little bit more extroverted. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe a bit more narcissistic. <laughs> And then the second thing is, in its mildest forms, the taste for this sort of thing is immensely popular. 
Yeah. So the most popular book of the last decade, 2010 to 2020, was Fifty Shades of Grey. The second most popular, the sequel. The third most popular, the end of the trilogy. Now, I'm sure 99% of people who read the book would not themselves get whipped or whatever. But there's a fascination and a draw. So one theory as to what's going on is sketched out by Rory Baumeister. And the idea is, it, it sounds kind of crunchy and weird, but it's an escape from self. That certain form of pain and certain forms of role-playing pull you out of your consciousness in the same way that expert meditators say that they do it, in the same way that high-performance athletes do it. For a little while, you forget about yourself. You abandon your social roles. You abandon your status, your place in a hierarchy. Certainly, the sheer feeling of pain, like a slap or worse, really focuses you. Yeah. Well, there's something about the intensity, right? The intensity of, of a sensation of whatever kind. If it's enough, it completely blots out any other thoughts or anxieties That's or right. neuroses because it's so overwhelming that you, you just simply don't have the bandwidth to worry or fret over anything because you're, you're just so caught up in, in that moment. That's right. And in fact, this is one account of something which is I think, not a good form of chosen suffering. But one reason why adolescents sometimes cut themselves is that it's a temporary respite from anxiety. Yeah. And as part of a treatment for it, as well as something people often think of themselves, you can put like elastic bands on your wrist and snap them. And it doesn't damage the body as much, but you get a boom. It takes your mind out of your obsessions. So tell me, what is wrong with hedonism, a philosophy like hedonism? Because it seems like a pretty straightforward path to happiness, right? I mean, if you offered people a chance to not have to work or do anything for money again and told them that they could live in a big house on a great beach with a grand pool and just swim and yeah. sunbathe all day long. I think a lot of people would say, hell yes. But do you think they would regret that? Even if that's true, that they would say yes. You know, a hedonist, and I, I know a few might say, well, maybe they'll regret a little bit at a time. But if they're having fun 95% of the time, it's 5% regret. They made the right life decision. And there's a big debate in psychology over what we should try to maximize. And the hedonists say you should try to maximize your day-to-day -day moments of pleasure. While the rest of us say you should try to maximize other things as well, including your satisfaction with your life. You know, to answer the question, what's wrong with hedonism, you could take it in different ways. And I could sort of give you some evidence that people want things other than pleasure, including the examples we've been discussing. But my favorite way to think about this, and I'm, I know you're going to be familiar with this, is a famous thought experiment by Robert Nozick who imagines an experience machine. He thought of this before the Matrix, but now everyone knows the idea. They plug you into something and you're in paradise. You have immediately lost your memory that you're plugged in. So you think you're living your real life, but you were living a life of immense satisfaction and challenge and accomplishment and carnal joy and deep respect and everything. The best life possible. But you're on a table hooked up to some wires and that's you for the rest of your life. And then the question is, would you want to be strapped into the machine? And I've asked a lot of people this question in teaching moral psych courses and so on. A fair amount say yes. I got to admit, I mean, I got to be fair. I'm, I'm a pluralist and some people rank pleasure pretty. I say, yeah, sure, strap me in. And certainly if I was like in a prison or something or, you know, all sorts of desperate situations, I'd much rather this life of pure pleasure than the life I'm living. But a lot of people say no, including Nozick and including me, maybe including you, because I don't just want to have experiences. I want to do things because I have people I love who I want to be with and I want to take care of, not just think 
I'm with them and take care of them. I'd be abandoning all sorts of friends and family. And yes, while I'm in the machine, I won't know I'm, a, I'm abandoning them, but I'm abandoning them nonetheless, and that's wrong. And so all sorts of other non-hedonistic motivations lead me to say, I'm going to take my real life a lot less pleasurable than the machine life, and I would find I'd prefer that. What about you? I have thought about this, and my answer has always been the same as yours. No. I forget whether it was the blue or the red pill in the Matrix, but my answer was <laughs> yes, always, right. you know, I, I want the real. But I guess that there is a part of me that does wonder, if push came to shove, would I really do that? I mean, hell, Paul, we could be living in a simulation right now. Yeah. What the hell is the difference in terms of our conscious experience of reality? It would be very tempting. I hope I would say no. And that continues to be my official position. No, I wouldn't plug into the matrix. I wouldn't dial into the experience machine. But I could see why some people would. And you know, just to sort of take the opposite side here, because I also say no, but the yesers will bring up something, which is the experience machine is kind of a little bit of a trick, how it's phrased. So this philosopher, Philippe de Brigard, points out there's a status quo bias because I'm asking you to abandon your life. Mm. And people don't like to abandon whatever's working for them to whatever extent it's working for them. But now flip it around. You seem to be living a pretty good life. All of a sudden, you know, we're done talking and floof, you find yourself in a room and you're facing somebody in a room and you're wearing a jumpsuit and everything and says, well, well, Sean, you've been living in the experience machine for the last two years. Seem to be enjoying it. But by dint of the contract you signed, we pull you out every two years and we ask, do you want to stay in that machine or do you want to live in a real world? Of course, if we put you back, we'll wipe out all memory of this experience. You'll just go back to being what you are. When I imagine that, it suddenly becomes a lot harder. Because then I say, well, I want to be back together with my partner and my kids and my profession. I know it's all an illusion, but it, it feels so real. Look, if you can throw in the men in black flashy thing, yes. I don't know. It's, it's not a hard sell. I'll put it like that. The men in black flashy thing is always a part of the deal. funny i'm having trouble remembering how i got here but anyway i'm in the middle of talking to psychologist paul bloom about happiness and part of what always complicates discussions about happiness is the fuzziness of the terms we use for example is satisfaction the same thing as happiness and if not what's the difference that's what i'll ask paul after a quick break Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money. How to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. 
greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb, arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. You just use the word satisfaction, and I, I do think it's important to, because words like satisfaction and happiness and pleasurable, these get used interchangeably all the time, but there do seem to be important differences, and I'm curious how you make these sorts of distinctions. Yeah, the vocabulary here is dreadful. People use the terms in all different ways, and then they appear to be agreeing when they aren't and disagreeing when they are. It causes a mess. So. Happiness, as I see it, has at least two meanings. And one meaning is close to day-to-day pleasure. You know, and experiments have been done. I give you an iPhone, it beeps at random times. Whenever it beeps, you say how happy you are. From one to 10, say, and we take and we average it. And I say, your life, man, your life, you're 7.8. But another sense of happiness is, I sit you down, I say, well, how good your life going? How happy are you? How's it going for you? Give you a scale from one to 10. Now, the numbers tend to correlate. So, you know, you might say eight and a half or seven or something. They don't tend to diverge that much, but they do diverge. And there are people who live lives of happiness, part one, call it pleasure, where they really have a lot of fun, but they think they're just living a crap life and they're full of regret. And other people, and I met more of these actually, who think they're living a really terrific life. And imagine somebody with, you know, a lot of kids and a stressful job and doing a lot of community work and relationships, complicated relationships, who says, yeah, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I, I have headaches all the time. There's so much strife, so much struggle. I'm worried about people and so on. I ask you, how's your life? Today? My life is wonderful. And so the question is, what do you want to maximize? And then you could then pull apart happiness from, the second one is closer to, I think, my satisfaction. So you call them two types of happiness, or you call one of them pleasure and another one satisfaction. And I would claim that we want to maximize both. Give me the choice. I'm, you know, nobody is indifferent to pleasure. Nobody should. That seems madness. But we also want to maximize satisfaction. And we take it as very important. Do you think most people are confused about what makes them happy? There's, <laughs> as a psychologist, I feel I'm supposed to say yes, because that's one of the creators. It's like, oh, people don't know what makes them happy. This has had kind of a weird history, because psychologists used to believe very strongly that money doesn't make you happy. And then we would laugh at all the people who thought money makes you happy. And now it turns out that, maybe not surprisingly, money does make you happy. 
the more money you make, the happier people are. And you give people money, they become happier. You take away their money, they become less happy. Because money buys things like, you know, food and security and safety and housing and travel and stuff like that. I think to some extent, people are mistaken. And I'll give you sort of classic examples, which is we tend to overstate the value of certain possessions. They do make us happy, but we quickly burn out on them. There's like a hedonic treadmill. And we tend to underestimate experiences and relationships and it's not hard to see it like sometimes i go to open houses and look at really cool houses and sometimes i'm going to fantasize about living in one of those houses and honestly when my kids were pretty young i would have a sort of recurring fantasy of living in some sort of freaky penthouse apartment in new york it's so beautiful and everything and it'd be so quiet and clean but the truth is that's not the kind of thing that makes a person happy they sit in this beautiful penthouse and they want a friend to share it with. They want people to hang out with. I think the one thing people miss is from both a happiness point of view and also sort of a purpose meaning point of view, the power of the right sort of social connections. But money can't be the thing, right? I mean, I, you know, Aristotle's concept and, and my political theory professors are, are, are going to roll their eyes if I butcher this. The word was eudaimonia, right? It's this idea yeah. that like the ultimate good has to be something that's desirable for its own sake. And not something like money, which is by definition a means to something else that will presumably make us happy. But it's not the thing. It's not the thing. It's a bridge to the thing, whatever that thing is. I think that's exactly right. But it could still be that accumulating money is a smart thing to do because it's a bridge to other things. Maybe you care about status. It's a bridge to status. Not sure that's healthy, but there you go. We do care about status. It's also a bridge to being able to say, screw you to your abusive boss, to take a trip to in, to in the United States to get better healthcare. Is there a simple way to distinguish a pleasurable pursuit from a meaningful one? No. And it's kind of sort of as an intuitive, it's intuitive on the extremes. I think people would say scratching where it itches, orgasm, chocolate croissant, pleasure. Nobody would describe it as a meaningful activities. Maybe sometimes, Paul. Maybe some, in, in, everything in the right context. Every, as I was saying, uh, can, we, can we just take another shot at that? Back to BDSM. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yes, yes. And then you get the meaningful activities. And they tend to be, when you ask people, and this isn't sort of a priori philosophical musing, you ask, what's meaningful and what's not? And meaningful pursuits, people say, having kids is a biggie. An interesting, difficult project. Uh, you know, training for a triathlon, starting a business maybe learning a new language, going to war, something which has consequence, climbing Mount Everest. I have a whole section of my book on, on endurance mountain climbing, and which is also a particularly very crazy thing. So you have these on the extremes, but then you have in-between things, which I don't know what to make of really, where it's not clear what itch is being scratched. Certain demanding activities, like um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi passed away a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about flow states, these are states where you get immersed in them. And you're, you're an athlete or you're a writer, or you're a musician. And the, the mark of a flow state is that you lose track of time. You know you're in a flow state if you forget to eat, if you get to pick up the kids at school, and you just kind of get lose yourself in it. And that's to answer your question, is a flow state a pleasurable state? Eh, not necessarily. It's not like fun in the sense of watching Netflix or eating cookies. It's actually often difficult. It involves struggle of some sort. Is it meaningful? To some extent, but you can have flow states for fairly 
unmeaningful things like it's just going out you know rock climbing with some friends or having a good conversation it's also amusing how different we all are you know like for instance i love physical challenges and i'm almost addicted to testing myself in that way i mean i really do find it meaningful but then there's something like camping which is physically demanding and rewarding in all kinds of ways my wife grew up in colorado she loves to go camping but i don't know what to say man like I'm into nature, but I'm apparently what's called a glamper. I want to go do the hike. I'm into the hiking. I'll, I'll do all that stuff. But afterwards, I want to go back to the warm cabin and I want to take a shower. I want to sleep in a bed. And, you know, she finds a deep satisfaction in yeah. the commitment and the adversity of camping. And we're just, we're just different in that way. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't know. My next book's going to be against camping. I would camp <laughs> with my family. And, I, you know, I never saw the point of it. To me, it was like this arbitrary deprivation. And I'm all for deprivation in the service of, you know, you're training for the triathlon or something, or you're trying to write a book involves deprivation, some degree of anxiety and struggle. But but it just seems like, well, <laughs> if we drive for a half hour, we get a really nice hot shower and a good meal. So this is just silly. But people don't feel that way. And whenever I tell people, they tell me about that the outdoors are supposed to be nice and all that. And I think it goes just as we can choose people's favorite sort of suffering and deprivation. In this case, even we can't decide ahead of time what's meaningful for what person. Uh, your wife finds camping meaningful and, and maybe in, it sets up a flow state and everything like that. For you, it doesn't. Well, the decision to have kids is such an interesting phenomenon here. You write about it in the book and, and you mentioned it a second ago. And as you point out, having kids, and if you're a parent, I have a two-year-old at the house right now, and I know you're a dad as well, Having kids diminishes your day-to-day -day happiness. It reduces marital satisfaction. we got a lot of data on that by now. And it doesn't really yeah. go away until the kids are out of the house. And you know, to just ask the question, well, why do we keep having kids? That seems a little dumb because I guess the answer is to continue the species. But you know, on an individual psychological level, right? why do so many of us actively sign up for so much unhappiness? Yeah. I think it's a really good question. Having kids for me is kind of a case study through which to explore what people want. And, you know, I know a lot of people who don't have kids and live rich and fulfilling lives. There's no way this conversation ends with me saying it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, maybe some people's lives would be a lot better if they didn't. But the thing about kids, the original studies showed that kids were just a killer happiness-wise. A lot less pleasure for parents and for non-parents. As always with psychology, later studies find it's more complicated. So the original studies looked at uh, a bunch of, one by Danny Kahneman, part of his Nobel Prize work, and it's just wonderful work, but looked at a bunch of nurses, female nurses in the United States. But it turns out that a lot of factors determine your happiness. Men tend to be happier being dads than women being moms. Older people tend to be happier than younger people. Single parents have it pretty rough. And there's an enormous country difference. So all of the original data was done in the United States, and then there was a study came out looking at 42 countries, and it turns out that the happiness hit for parents is worse in the States than any other country, possibly because of childcare issues. But to some extent, your question still remains. Anybody who's seen anybody with a two-year-old, I, I talked to this journalist a couple months ago, I think he was telling me he had a, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old in the house and Good Lord. You know, we were zooming and he looked like he had been captured by Hezbollah and not fed <laughs> or given any health care for like a long time. He looked exhausted and it's tough 
Nobody doubts it's tough. From a strictly hedonic point of view, spending years with young children is not what you would choose. And yet, we do choose it, and we don't regret it, for the most part. So the question is why, and I think the answer is, children are not predominantly hedonic choice. They're not a a pleasure-increasing mechanism. People choose to have children and love their children and love what they've done, maybe because it gave meaning and purpose in their life, maybe because they love their children. And once you love somebody, you honestly don't wish that they didn't exist. You are happy that they brought them into the world, these people who add so much to your life. And it's complicated. There are studies which ask people, how happy are you? And parents versus non-parents. And the data are all over the place, but sometimes non-parents give you higher scores. Then there are other studies which simply ask how meaningful your life is. And then it goes the other way. Yeah. And look, I've heard you say this, and it's true for me as well. If you asked me today what I most identify as, I'd say a father. That'd be my first answer before writer, husband, veteran, southerner, whatever. It's dad. That's the first role. Yeah. Um, And that says something about the significance of that relationship and that role. And there's one other thing along those lines, which is um, after my book came out, there was a very interesting article by Westgate and Oishi on psychological diversity and diverse experiences, where they argued that along the regular list of what people want, people want some degree of variety in their life experiences. And for me, having kids introduced me to a new emotion, introduced me to a new feeling, which is intense love of a sort that's not romantic and not towards a friend. But the feeling of parental or paternal love, for me, was like seeing a whole different color and a whole different set of feelings. And and again, nothing is unmixed. You know, I quote Zadie Smith, who just speaks wonderfully about the horribleness of having kids and the horrible risk of having kids. Because you might lose them. And look, even you just mentioned romantic love, but that seems to me a similar puzzle with a similar answer. You know, the happiness arithmetic there doesn't really add up either. Since loving another person romantically requires total vulnerability and the absolute guarantee at some point of loss and real pain. But we do it anyway perhaps because we can't help it, but also because the peak is unintelligible without the valley. To experience that kind of joy is to risk that kind of suffering. And that's just the math of the universe or whatever. That's right. It's, It's Zadie Smith again. She quotes a condolence letter, which had the line, it hurts as much as it's worth. Yeah. And that's the logic of it. I mean, Louis C.K. has a sort of skit on this where he talks about romance and falling in love and everything. And he points out that the very best case you'll end up with is that you'll spend an enormous amount of time with each other and one of you will die, leaving the other one bereft. That's the best case. I think a lot of us realize intuitively that a life full of meaning and purpose is a life that includes both pleasure and pain. But do we really need to suffer in order to reach peak human well-being? That's coming up after one last short break. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. 
That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, is there a case that suffering is actually more important to human flourishing or human well-being than pleasure? Should we see it that way? I wouldn't go that far. I would think that if you could go into somebody's brain and take away the capacity for pleasure, they wouldn't be motivated to do the sort of Darwinian good things like eat and drink and have sex and so on. So I think that suffering comes in as a way to enhance pleasure. You know, and it's dispensable in that way. There's a lot of pleasure that you could get without your suffering. But it comes in the context of purposeful and important activities. I think a life without purposeful and important activities would be a kind of really sad life. But it would be a life. You know, it's funny thinking about your question. People often say that one of the good things about suffering is that it makes you appreciate the good things. You wouldn't experience pleasure without pain. Your question about a life without pleasure, maybe a life of pleasure, you wouldn't be able to appreciate suffering. Right. Right. Everything is sort of defined by its opposition, right? That's kind of the duality of, <laughs> of life, you know? Yes, yes. Um, but a lot of this speaks to the, and this is something you, you write about in the book as well, the power of reframing, uh, the power of telling ourselves the right story about what we're doing and why. As Nietzsche said, who you quote in the book, right? We can bear any how if we have a why. And that's a huge part of this too, right? It is. And, and this is something where chosen suffering and unchosen suffering start to share properties. Where you could ask, how do we bear certain terrible things that happen to us? And one answer is what Dan Gilbert calls the psychological immune system, which is we're really good storytellers. We will tend to say uh, things happen for a reason. We'll explain in terms of karma. I think this is one force why religion is so appealing to people because religion gives people answers to that question. Why did this stuff happen to me? Is it just, you know, shit happens? 
That is a deeply unsatisfying answer. I think it's true, but it's deeply unsatisfying. And so our storytelling capacities, I think, help smooth over certain bad events. And I'm ambivalent about it because I don't think it's true, many of these stories. But at the same time, I think they're good for people to believe sometimes. Boy, that's a road we could go down here, but I'll resist uh, because I do want to talk about the happiness industry, if you don't mind. You have a lot to say about the quick fix self-help grifters out there kind of telling us how to be happy. You're not as skeptical as some. I, don't, I wouldn't say that you're anti all of that, but there is a lot of bullshit out there. And I'm just curious, what are the red flags that people should look out for here in this space, for lack of a better word? There's a lot of bullshit out there. Um, in the preface of my book, I tell a story about a, a motivational speaker I heard who promises to tell you how to live your very best life. And due to accident, I ended up hearing him present. And it was total incoherent bullshit that people ate up. And then I, I was also very skeptical about positive psychology in general. I heard a lot of crappy positive psychology. It's, it is the happiness industry. And when you hear somebody giving a talk to a thousand people or it's a TED talk or something like that, you'll often hear the very worst. I remember going to a TED Talk. It's a colleague, an academic, so I'm not going to say who this was. The person said, you know, rigorous exercise really cheers you up. So for depressed people, here's like, do a lot of rigorous exercise, and it will make you a lot happier. And I'm thinking, man, I'm not depressed. And the amount of energy it takes me to go out for a jog or lift some weights is a lot. Telling a depressed person that's their clue? It's the stupidest advice in the world. Tell them to go for a walk. That's nice. Worse. A lot of the early positive psychology simply had a simple hedonistic view. They said the most important thing in life is to be happy, pleasure, avoid pain, and had kind of advice to do that. But I'm not a total skeptic. I think uh, there's some really smart people in the field. And Marty Seligman, who's the sort of godfather of positive psychology, is very clear to distinguish different forms of the good life. And then other people, my colleague, Gloria Santos, has a, a happiness podcast where she brings in really smart people and they talk about it, about the subtleties of this. So there's a lot of good work out there, but the stuff you're most likely to bump into is a lot of crap because the stuff which catches on like wildfire and stuff which tells you what you want to hear and offers quick fixes, the things that don't have quick fixes. Have you ever peeked into the world of wellness Instagram? <laughs> no, Are you familiar? No. My God. I am not. It is an orgy of sublimated narcissism and lifestyle porn. And I don't know, but it's, it's an experience. I don't think a particularly uh, healthy one, but yeah. it's a whole thing. I mean, in the end, advice on how to live a good life. I don't think there's particularly any cheat codes. Yeah. I think a lot of it is just sort of, you know, ancient wisdom and also the sort of thing a, a reasonable person might tell you, you know, try to nurture good relationships get involved in serious projects. Family's important. Friends are important. Rewarding work is important. Superficial stuff, less important. And then there's stuff around the margins. You know, maybe uh, mindfulness meditation can help out. A lot of debate about that, but maybe that's a really good thing. Who knows, maybe gratitude exercises are a clever hack. So, you know, I would want to keep my eyes open to surprises from the scientific literature. But in the end, if somebody just tells you, you know, the secret to happiness, you should go run away. And just going back to, you know, the red flags question, I mean, are there any other examples you can think of or just kind of flashing signs that, you know, as soon as you see them or hear them, you walk in the other direction as it relates to people, you know, preaching about uh, the road to happiness or well-being or whatever? Yeah. 
Um, when you hear the word dopamine, <laughs> run like hell. Why? Because dopamine, <laughs> some, dopamine and then some days oxytocin are these buzzwords. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It's so sciencey, though, Paul. It is such a sciencey word. I think that none of the insights, none of the insights on how to live a good life outside of sort of pharmaceutical research have come from studies of the brain. That's not to say that our minds aren't our brains. I'm not a dualist in the slightest. It just so happens that dopamine is just used as a sciencey astounding term for pleasure and good things. And A, dopamine is a lot more complicated than that. And B, it adds nothing. It's as if, you know, I said, you should drink plenty of water, but I wanted to become really famous. as you should drink plenty of H2O. That'll really do the trick. Yeah, okay. dopamine. Check. Well, you mentioned flow state earlier, and I don't want to get too much in, in the weeds on that, and we won't. There's certainly is something to the idea that you are better off, you do well by finding activities in which you can completely absorb yourself in, you know, in the here and now, that, that concentrate your attention in ways that just sort of undermine the capacity to think too much about the past or the future or whatever. And you write in the book that, you know, one way to screw up being happy is trying to be happy. And, you know, it makes me think of the problem with the idea of, of chasing happiness. It, it assumes that happiness is something out there, something to be discovered and bottled up or acquired. But that seems to set it up as unattainable, as something beyond yourself that you're just eternally grasping after. And that seems like a bit of a fool's Aaron. Happiness, and maybe the good life in general, falls into a sort of category of things for which striving for it defeats what you want to get. The two other examples are male sexual arousal, sexual arousal in general, actually, and falling asleep. The trick to falling asleep does not involve saying, go to sleep, damn it. And the trick to being happy isn't, you know, I got to be happy when I kill myself. I, a friend of mine, Ted Slingerland, wrote a great book called Trying Not to Try, which explores the Chinese philosophical tradition on the question of how do you get effortless performance in something that requires a degree of mastery? And it includes like being happy and being competent and being cool and being sexy and all those good things. And it's a long debate and answers vary. There's a sort of Confucian answer, which is rigorous discipline and training will make things automatic. And then there's, I think, other traditions involving more sort of drunken goofiness. And it comes out from that. These are, these are old questions. Now you're making me wonder that about that Confucius quote. Do you buy that? I mean, it sounds like a, one of those kind of paradoxical aphorisms, like, you know, how real freedom consists in like self-discipline <laughs> or discipline is the road to freedom or something <laughs> like that. I mean, is that just something that kind of sounds cool or profound or is it like a deepity or, or is it like, is oh. there something there, there? I don't know. It, it's, I think I'm highly sensitive to bullshit expressions, but actually, you know, freedom comes from constraint and discipline and so on. Seems to capture kind of a deep truth. Um, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of people in the political theory world who think that, you know, total freedom is a kind of bondage in a way, which is why people go to great lengths to avoid it or go berserk when they have it. We work well with constraints. And also things which are seemingly effortless often come from an extraordinary amount of work. My favorite example, not as somebody engaged in it, just somebody who enjoys watching it, is a stand-up. So you might think that, you know, a stand-up comedian, you know, just jumps on stage, he's a funny guy, tells some jokes, all relaxed and everything. But of course, the amount of practice and training and discipline would put a, an analytic philosopher to shame. Yeah. 
the care, working out each joke and planning it and then trying it out as an experiment where you, you try out a hundred clubs, different variations of it. And it's a wonderful example of how something seemingly free comes from an enormous amount of, of discipline and work. It's engineered insanity in some ways. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, look, you use the phrase a good life, and it does appear in your book. And I don't want to ask you to tell people what the good life is. Uh, that's not fair. But I do have to believe that writing a book like this does leave you with at least a few thoughts on how best to spend our time on the sorts of things that we should prioritize or stay away from. What is the kind of takeaway on that front for you after thinking about this and, and writing about it for so long? Yeah, I'm a pluralist, like I said. I think there's many things we want. My own feeling is a good life tries to satisfy quite a few of them. So maybe this is in some way, you know, Aristotelian, sort of trying to find a balance, but a good life tries to satisfy many of them in different ways. It doesn't, for instance, shun pleasure. I think that, that's strange and kind of sad, but it doesn't go to totally hedonistic route. But there's always a balance. And to some extent, my title, The Sweet Spot, refers to more than one thing. But one thing it refers to is the proper balance between different priorities. You know, you're, you're sitting at home and you could catch up on Netflix, a show you really want to watch. You could go visit a sick friend. You can, you know, read up on a technical article that seems very important. And we always have, if we're fortunate, we always can have a choice of many motivations through which to satisfy. And it's always a difficult choice. And to some extent, a personal one. I think that if you went up to 100 people, went up to all your friends, actually, and gave a list of these things, meaning, purpose, morality, and said... Here's a hundred points. How do you allocate them? You get different allocations. Yeah. And it's not for me to say what's right and what's wrong. Maybe I'll just say, don't put a hundred on any one of those. I like the idea of pluralism. I think you've won me over. I think I'm going to tell people I'm a pluralist now when this comes up. It's a good thing to be. Yeah. You Look, no school or tradition or philosophy or approach has a monopoly on happiness. Pleasure is good and you should seek it out. But you should also do hard things. And you should also fail every now and again and learn from that and grow from that and you know find the tension between all these things not immerse yourself too much one way or the other and you know once you found a hedonist you go around telling everybody you're a pluralist and say, well, screw that i'm a hedonist i just care about pleasure your advice might still be good you might say well you're a hedonist you want to have a good time but you don't want to get bored that's painful so why don't you throw some struggle your way throw some difficulty throw some challenges and then that will help get your hedonist against yeah this is great fun. It's always great fun talking to you. I really enjoyed the book and I wish you the very best with it. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. It's always great talking to you, Sean. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Trostowska. Paul Robert Mouncy mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. 
and join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte. Right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash Discover Careers.